Well, <clears throat> first off, let's thank God. Dear Lord, we are very grateful for our freedoms that we're able to gather in this town, in this home, to spend time in your word and to Give up our souls a bit to your direction. In your son's name, amen. Well, <clears throat> as you know, this is a Bible study on the book of Romans, <clears throat> which is always, um, if someone says we're doing a Bible study on Colossians, or all the letters, really, you say Romans, you're going to say, because they know all sorts of things fell passages of scripture uh, are available to us over the next 16 chapters. Eight weeks, 16 chapters, two chapters a week. All right? It is not going to be a detailed word study. We are looking at the book, hopefully, as the people who received it looked at the book, as a letter written to them by the Apostle Paul. Um, the primary thing I hope to do is not address the book in light of all of the detritus that has gathered around it over 2,000 years of Christendom. There's all sorts of stuff in the book that people have fought bloody battles on forgotten hills about. It might be in there, it might not, but we'd like to be answering the questions the Romans had not answering the questions Christendom managed to attach to this book over the course of, of two millennium. So uh, we want to have the book, you know, one thing I tell people at various points, you not only have to justify your answer, you have to justify your question. You have to say, is this the right question to be asking of this passage? When someone thinks that the Jew-Gentile problem has no place in the book of Romans, they are grossly mistaken, because the Jew-Gentile problem is throughout the book. The first two chapters address it in, in aspects. So, you're trying to figure out, since you don't have any kind of correspondence from the Romans to Paul, uh, you see, he seems to have had some kind of contact from them. He has never been there. Uh, you want to find out what it was, from what he writes, what is he trying to answer? And, again, every, uh, perhaps in the exception of end times views, uh, just about everything is going to land in Romans. Some end times views in Romans 8. So, uh, with that in mind, that's sort of the basic approach. Background on the book, there's very little. No one really doubts that Paul wrote it. Uh, even the most wild-haired liberal uh, doubter of all things scriptural would still be forced by the quotations from Clement forward um, that St. Paul wrote the book. His name's on it. He said he wrote it to the Romans. Um, everybody agreed that he wrote it to the Romans. Everybody knew about it real early. And, uh, uh, and it is probably, if you looked at it as a fraud, you would say, my gosh, what a genius this fraud was because it's genius. It's a, a brilliant, brilliant book. The one question about its authorship, not about its authorship, but about its uh, integrity, that's probably not a good word either, is chapter 16, all the greetings, there is some question as to whether or not those are to the Ephesians. That 
uh, because the earliest copy of Romans has the benediction at the end of 16, at the end of chapter 15. The greetings following. And they think, some, and this is just a suggestion of some, that all the greetings are far more, you might say, Ephesian Provence, Priscilla, Aquila, various other people, than they do Roman. Paul's never been to Roman, and it's a lot of names of people he, you know, in Rome that, well, you could argue that a lot of people he knew had gotten to Rome, so he was saying hi to them at the end of the letter. Not a problem accepting that it's part of the Roman uh, function, but they think the people who suggest that it's still written by Paul, but that the copy, that like they would copy letters for each other. Like he, he even tells them in Colossians and uh, um, to exchange letters with Laodicea. And so there's this tendency, and the, and the Paul, writers of Paul, writings of Paul were collected, probably the earliest, of, besides the Gospels, you know, Romans, uh, uh, Acts through Philemon, are pretty, pretty much in all the earliest canons. I mean, there's nothing missing of St. Paul. Um, so the possibility they suggest is that it may have been um, a copy of Romans that Paul wanted to send to Ephesus, and so he greets everybody at the end of the book in Ephesus, having sent them a copy of Romans, and that it that happens to be the manuscript that survived. Consequently, all copies of Romans happen to have that oddity that it was not. But again, it's not. There's no crisis in it. I mean, you don't you don't have to go well. Either way, you're not you're not denying one either, either inerrancy of scripture or or who wrote it. You're not saying some monk in the 800s was adding this stuff. Um, but I, I tend to go along with the well, it's in the dang book. Let's just assume he <coughs> knew some folks in Rome, and that's one of the reasons he was going to stop there and and the like. Date of the writing is probably somewhere between 56, 59, depending. Uh, internal evidence is primarily the reason. Um, from Chen, this is upside down. Uh, Romans 16, 15, somewhere. 1525. Thank you. 1525. He says, uh, and following, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem with aid for the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed, uh, they are in debt to them, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, uh, they ought also be a service to them in material blessings. This collection of a gift for Jerusalem happens at the end of the third missionary journey when Paul's at Corinth, um, and he stays there for three months, and uh, Timothy's with him, Sosipater, and, and, and they're about to head back to Jerusalem where he ends up getting arrested, and ends up getting sent to Rome. His plan was just to go back to Jerusalem and then head intentionally west in, on his way to Spain. Um, he had not planned to stay in Rome, but he was planning to go on to Spain. Um, so there's a, uh, uh, that three-month gap where he's probably given some of the comments here at the end of the book, they're saying, okay, that's where he is, end of the third missionary journey, approximately 56, 57, 59, somewhere in there. Um, uh, the dating of Paul's ministry is hung on, on pretty narrow 
threads in terms of your ability to say anything for sure. Um, but uh, that's where you probably get Romans written. Um, and it sounds like his plans to get to Rome were not hindered by him getting arrested, other than the three years in jail, you know, other than that. Uh, so, our plan, looking at this book, is to try to get a sense of what Paul is trying to teach to people he largely doesn't know in a town he hasn't been to. Somebody else's ministry has established the Roman church. Um, and he wants to be of benefit to it. Now the first portion of the book, the first few chapters, is setting out the problem that he wants to be sure uh, he addresses for the Romans. Um, we do know that in Rome, Priscilla and Aquila had been kicked out of Rome earlier. He ran up, uh, ran up with them. And uh, they were uh, Christians, and uh, Claudius, the emperor, had kicked uh, all the Jews out of Rome. Now, in uh, the Roman historian um, Suetonius, he comments that during the reign of Claudius, uh, uh, he had to kick all the Jews out of Rome because of problems, civic problems, having to do with the instigation of one Crestus. And most people think that that was a Suetonian error of, you know, the, the issue of Christ was causing a problem between the Jews and the Christians. The Jews, maybe the Gentile Christians. Well, so, so riotous that they were all kicked out, and that's why Priscilla and Aquila end up in Greece proper, because they've been kicked out of Rome by Claudius, around early 50, 51, somewhere in there. Um, so we know that there's always, there's, there's this tenseness that exists between unbelieving Jews, believing Jews, and believing Gentiles. Uh, sort of a, a, a state of religious, uh, some religious foment. By the time at the end of Acts, Paul does get to Rome, the Jews there have, don't have any outside problems that have been shipped in, that have been following Paul around the Mediterranean. Uh, a lot of Jews have had a problem with Paul. Uh, but that, that, that noise hadn't reached Rome. But they may have had their own earlier problems that might have been settled by, by Claudius' actions, kicking all, them all out of Rome. Um, so it, there is a... Um, there's that background. And you're going to see a little bit of that being addressed here in the first two chapters. So let's get into what it says. Verse 1, chapter 1. Um, the things on the side are not part of the scripture. They are just notes, and feel free to disagree, cross them out, write your own stuff in, and say, he is a fool. Things like that. Red pen. Um, but uh, feel free to... Uh, oh, I three-hole punch these in case you ever want to get a notebook, and by the end of this you'll have all of Romans. Uh, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. The gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and designated son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including yourselves, 
who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all God's beloved in Rome, who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is basically Paul's status regarding the gospel. Now, he's, it, it's almost, it's pretty much a fanfare when it comes across here. The guy pounds the staff into the floor and says, uh, the Duke of so-and-so, here I am. Paul's service, which you see in this, is the complete giving over to the gospel and Christ. Um, set apart for the gospel, a gospel that was promised, a gospel concerning his son, uh, David on one hand, the flesh, son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, um, for a purpose, to bring about the obedience of faith, which you'll notice, miraculously, came out in red. Maybe you ought to pay attention to it. Um, it's the gift called page maker. Um, receive grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. That's what the task is. The um, the book could probably be summed up almost in that phrase, bringing about the obedience of faith. There are notes on the buffet, and you can right there. And you can grab a chair from the dining room with the what they're called, the courtrights. People with long names have to sit in the back. Small bridges and courtrights. All of this is on the recording, London. So now I've identified you. Have a candy cane, Tyler. <laughs> Jennifer. I didn't even notice them. I put those. I just moved them there. Yeah. All this is being recorded. <laughs> this, their God is their belly. Well, what we're trying to say, right? The first paragraph there, London. Uh, we're trying to say is that that the idea of bringing about the obedience of faith. The problem of two, two millennia is that words just get crushed. Obviously, a religion of faith in the death of their God was an unusual phenomenon. Okay? A monotheistic, trinitarian cult centering on just faith alone, no temple, no idol, no It's weird in the ancient world. But we have gotten into the weirdness of not even being able to understand the words we use when we say the obedience of faith. Why is it the obedience of faith? I thought we were just supposed to get people all sort of worked up into a just-as-I-am frenzy and have them walk the aisle and commit themselves. Like they, they do this out of obedience? How can you have an idea, faith, your, what is your faith? What is, what is that about? Is it just believing in something? Everybody struggles with it because they pray and they want to pray with faith, or they, they wonder if they got saved, was my faith strong enough, was it dead faith? You know, the, all the standard questions. It's the task of Paul. He has been brought into the gospel, called out to be in, in this job, and the gospel that is centered around this deity and this deity had done a thing that was, when preached, bringing about, intended to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. That, 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 so quit, are you overstressing it, Evan? Are you saying that the obedience of faith is any, 
anything more than another way of religiously phrasing becoming a Christian. Um, well, we know that they haven't really been dealing with the idea of becoming a Christian this early in the church. Nobody ever says that in the Bible. I think you should become a Christian. Because that's going to be a, a wash with every theological principle, every distinct group in Christendom wants to add to it. The obedience of faith um, is hanging on what Paul, throughout the rest of this book, is going to describe as the task of faith, or the strength of faith, or the glory of faith. So he identifies his status. This is my purpose, the gospel to bring about this. Your status, the Romans, with St. Paul, verse 8, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So it seemed like the Roman church was a pretty uh, respectable, good reputation church in the world, ancient world. Everybody's talking about them. Kind of like Mars Hill in Seattle. Everybody, maybe not. That's on the tape too. <laughs> For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by one each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brethren, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. First, there was Paul's relationship, his bona fides regarding the gospel, what he is about. Second, their relationship in Rome to him and what the basic personal exchange is supposed to be. The obedience of faith is his general task. I've got the gospel, I've got people, I've got to bring about the obedience of faith. With you, you are already in the faith. And now we're going to be sharing our faith back and forth, right? He says uh, in verse, uh, encouraged by each other's faith, in verse 12, both yours and mine. So there's supposed to be a, this faith stuff is supposed to have, supposed to have a a meeting potential that that uh, that it, some gain is gotten from Christians gathered together in this faith stuff, whatever this faith stuff is. Some spiritual gift he wants to impart. Um, uh, he seems to have a desire to be in Rome because I mean it's the it's the center of the known world at the time. It's the great capital. It's it's, if anything, represented the Gentile world, it's Rome, and although there were some Christians and Jews there, it's a Gentile city, and um, Paul has a ministry, he's called to that, and so that's why he wants to go to Rome. So there's these specific reasons why he and the Romans want to meet. There is an admiration for one another, at least Paul for them, there is a desire to exchange recipes of faith, and there is a desire to extend his ministry past the Romans and to impart some spiritual gift to them. So, mutual benefit, singular benefit from Paul to them, and also gospel benefit to those who don't know yet. Now, that sort of 
lays out where uh, it's sort of the the entry, the the sign on to the letter. It, it is all filled with content. The scriptural letters always seem to have these nice intros. It's never dear grandma. It's always you know quite a bit of benefit uh, spiritually if you read through any of the introductions and any of the closings. Um, but that's where it, that's where it takes you is in the introduction down through verse fifteen. Paul then has laid on uh, so much of his task and with them, and that he wants to talk about it, and he's going to talk about it for chapters, uh, laying out, um, and we're not even sure why, because they're in the faith, their faith is renowned. It may be in part like when he went to, to Jerusalem, uh, in Galatians, I believe it was, where he, he says that he would lay before the apostles what he had already preached, that he would not have been found to be preaching in vain. And they found that the gospel he preached was the gospel they preached, and all was right with the world. Um, Paul's making some great, very friendly declarations, uh, and you're not going to think it sounds as friendly because he's addressing sin and wickedness later in this section. Um, but what he's really doing is he's laying out his view with the saving message. Not so much that he wants to save the Romans, they're saved. But he's laying out what it means. What this gospel, what this faith, what it means. And um, that his insights regarding the faith, that when he says, I may impart to you some spiritual gift, that we may be encouraged by one another's faith, and you're having a better sense that that's what he's doing for the Romans, rather than actually preaching the gospel to them. He's outlining the gospel he preaches so that, and, and we do till this day, people call it the Roman road. People call it, you know, they take someone through Romans if they want them to understand how to be a Christian without being religious by Fritz Rittenauer was a study of Romans. You know, you, you had all sorts of um, effects of this book because it's such a clear outline of what it is to be a believer and what the, the, key, uh, the key points are. So I think he's doing that. I don't, just because he said, you're Christians, and he said, I want to encourage you faith to faith, and then he starts talking. Verse 16 is the thematic verse, or couple verses, of the book. Like I said, obedience of faith is sort of the title of the book. This is the thematic verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Seems like he has faith on the brain. Through faith, for faith, everyone who has faith, the righteousness, uh, those who are by faith righteous shall live. The quote of an adjusted quote from Habakkuk. Um, the the theme of that is there. He's, he's stating his... Uh, someone came up to me in church on Sunday and asked me about our uh, theology, which is natural, you visiting a church, and they, they were not... hadn't been in our church but a couple of times, I think. And, and so we got... Well, first I tossed a few things out, and, and I said, we believe in salvation by faith through grace. 
by grace through faith, excuse me, uh, not of your own doing, gift of God, lest any man should boast. And she smiled and she said, okay, good, that's what I wanted to hear, because that, I, I, that's the, for me, that's uh, central. Um, when a person is laying out, the, the, before other Christians, um, you want to say, well, like I corrected myself, anybody who knew the verse, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, you go, he said, he got great, you know, he could go to the, the stake for that. I mean, he could, at different Christian ages, I could have. Um, I knew people who wouldn't sign a, a statement of faith because it said we were saved on the ground of our faith, and people were flipping out like it was, you know, you know, the pentagram, you know, and worship Satan, because you said ground of faith. But that, that is in us. We, 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 especially in the early church, aren't many Christians in the Mediterranean. Um, here's a, a notable church getting a letter from a guy they haven't met um, who wasn't one of the Lord's chosen apostles. He was one who had to prove his apostleship. Um, but he's a notable teacher, and everybody's sort of impressed with Paul, but he's, he's coming there. Let's see, what, he, what, is he, what does he think about this gospel? What is his idea of the gospel? If you were to meet somebody that you had heard all sorts of things about, and, oh, I remember, this is back in Jimmy Carter's day, and uh, Jimmy Carter claimed to be a Christian. I do not know if he is. Uh, he was claimed to be led to the Lord uh, by his sister, Ruth Carter Stapleton. And uh, it, was all, it was all in the news. This was before you were born, Tammy. Um, <laughs> I remember Jimmy Carter. Okay. Um, and, I, and everybody said it was great. My father voted for Jimmy Carter because he was a Christian. I don't know your opinion about Jimmy Carter. But the reason I said I don't know if he's a Christian is because I read June Carter Stapleton's view of the gospel. <laughs> And she said it was actualizing your own potential. Those are her words. Actualizing your own potential. And I said, how did Jimmy Carter get saved on that gospel? You know, maybe that's not the one she preached to him, because he was a brother, and the, she wanted to go to heaven. But, but you check with people. You check with people. Uh, about what do you mean when you say the gospel? What is the gospel? I hear people referring to all sorts of things. Doing good deeds is the gospel. And Paul lays it out. The power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. Which is an interesting phrasing. Like the obedience of faith. Yeah, we, we kind of know what faith is, right? Didn't the writer of Hebrews, you know, let us, a nice quotable verse, the uh, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Well, how does that play into this? The obedience of faith and, and faith that, uh, that will bring salvation from God, the power of God for salvation through to everyone who has faith. It's not commanded by faith. It's not made workable by faith. It is only sequentially after faith. Okay? To everyone who has faith, the power of God for salvation works. Not because, but after. 
it's one of those, what is it, post hoc ergo proctor hoc. Yeah. Um, you, you don't, you won't, don't want to say because, uh, after, therefore, because of, after this, because of this. Um, but they are tied together. The faith of the individual, everyone who has faith, Jew first, also Greek, will bring about the power of God, or God brings about his power to save them, because he has this opinion of them. Now, because, the reason is, is because it is the righteousness of God revealed through faith. Revealed through faith for faith. The faith generates more faith. Either more faith in another, or more faith in you. Uh, when it talks about in Galatians, a foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the, by hearing with faith or by works of the law? Are you so foolish have you begun with the Spirit and now ending with the flesh? He's saying, then he says a, a little later, you, as you received him, so live in him. Our life is to be faith on faith. Faith leading to greater faith. Now, I'm, I'm not pushing what the, you might say, the, um, the attitude of faith, the, 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 the construct of faith. I quoted the Hebrews passage, but we're not I want you to have the, that feeling of its absence or it not being clear right just yet. Um, so that we get a sense of where Paul goes with this. Um, now, this salvation, the power of God for salvation. Okay, well, what's this is the theme, the salvation from what? Salvation. Everyone who has faith and gets delivered from this, you'll, get, you'll live from this. So the theme of the letter, 1617. The need for the theme, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That's why there's a salvation. If, 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 there were, if it were not for this faith and this task of bringing about the obedience of this faith, there would be no salvation. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. The, uh, the nature of the suppression um, by their wickedness. We're going to get a little bit into it. It, it lays it out for us very, in a nice tidy fashion here. Um, all ungodliness and wickedness. It's a. It's not the bad deed at the end of the day. There's a bad deed: pushing Granny down a flight of stairs, uh, uh, getting drunk first, then pushing Granny down a flight of stairs. Two bad deeds. Cursing while you're drunk, pushing Granny down. So you got three bad deeds. Well, the bad deeds are at the end of the day, really. There's just sort of what you do with yourself after you got this way. Who by their wickedness suppress the truth. Not so much that they try to stop Christians from preaching, that kind of suppression. 
the truth that they are suppressing is one far more personal than what I preach or Paul preached. They are suppressing that which is in them, the truth. And that is, I want to warn you, that is the axis of faith we're working on. Let's move on. For ever since the creation of the world. Oh, excuse me, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. So you'll see that their wickedness, by their wickedness, suppressing the truth, is something that they are facing up to in themselves. Known, plain, God has shown it to them. Uh, ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely, that which is not seen. Okay, remember the definition in Hebrews. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. His invisible nature, his eternal power and deity, are have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. The wickedness of man is the juxtaposition of the, you might say, of a flight from faith, a flight from faith away from the recognition of God who has made himself obvious. You know, the, the unseen thing that's clearly perceived. Okay, unseen thing, clearly seen. That's, that's what it's saying. His invisible nature, unseen, clearly perceived, seen. They're without excuse, it's so clear. It's not like, oh, I can understand how they're going to miss that. You know, I, I gave bad directions to Walmart. I can understand how they got... What was that woman in Europe who just got drove 900 miles down to Croatia following her Magellan or Tom Tom trying to pick up a friend at the airport? 900 miles later, they have to go rescue her from Croatia because she followed her GPS. Correction. Reprocessing. Recalculating. Recalculating. Drive to Istanbul. <laughs> Turn left. His eternal power and his deity. And this is the beginning point. Now the first thing is to say that, that what Paul is juxtaposing against faith as the problem that faith answers. Faith, through faith, for faith, obedience of faith, faith unto salvation, faith hurrah, yay, for faith. We're Christians, no team. Is this wicked suppression of the truth about God? That his representation of himself, God being plain to them, that is your, you might say, your floating task. God being plain. Because faith addresses itself to that. And wickedness addresses itself to that. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, or birds, or animals, or reptiles.
God standing where God is. As mere deity with eternal power. Okay? That's all it says. It, you know, that the things that are you don't perceive Jesus clearly in the things that have been made. You don't stand, look at the Milky Way, and go, oh my gosh, Jesus Christ. You say, oh my heavens, there is a God, and I would suspect he is really powerful. Okay, those are two things, right? The teleological argument really only carries two things. You're dealing with an agent who is sentient and knows and hence has to be a personality, has to be a God, has to be divine, and have a lot of power. That's what that's where you are. Now that's what they cannot be excused from knowing. That's what they cannot now that's not a saving faith message. Right? <clears throat> but their suppression of the truth by their wickedness comes through this. They did not honor him in red. They or give thanks to him in red. They did not honor or give thanks. Because once I realize that the natural world is from the hand of this God, once I step into that possibility, I am dealing, well sure, there's a lot of calamity, I'm dying, I get sick, I get toothaches, all sorts of things, but there's beauty and there's joy and there's pleasure and there's all sorts of stuff that this God has obviously provided to his creation. Many, many good things. And honoring him, reverencing a God that you encounter, and thanking the God that you encounter, is step one, right? Step one of faith. All you have to begin, it doesn't save you. Honor him, thank him. Old Testaments, you know, or Gentiles who were God lovers, honored God and thanked him didn't save them. They still had to hear the gospel. They still had to believe. But this was the, you might say, the proto-faith. Because the axis of faith, what faith does, is it, it is um, attending to this idea of God. It, what, what is my... And this is why people run off, and oh, some saw some comedian on TV a couple nights ago, and he said that he was an atheist. Well, because he was reasonable. And the whole crowd cheered. Yay. Damn eternally. But, you know, they, they were cheering. Because I'm reasonable. The man couldn't, you know, have reasoned his way out of a wet sack. But he could have been funny. But he, he, was, claiming, he was claiming this. But they do not want to honor God or thank him. Now, there's, this is a wonderful passage. This can be Bible lessons galore could come out of this passage. Uh, <clears throat> I'm only trying to find the thread that Paul is following primarily, not that other things can't be beneficially drawn from um, from this, but when you when you see that they become futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man or birds or animals or reptiles. Every religion or philosophy that comes from that which is not Christian is to one degree or another a folly designed to avoid him. Designed to keep something from going after God. You know, we, we basically know that, that broad is the way that leads to destruction, narrow is the way that leads to life, those who find that are few. 
uh, people aren't looking that hard. Faith, was it saying in Hebrews also that I overquote this passage, uh, anyone who draw near to God must first believe he exists and he rewards those who seek him. There is an aspect, I mean, is, is what do I do with the question of God is, and, and what the question of God builds itself into being. Because I go from eternally powerful and a divinity to I start to suspect he's in charge of a lot of other things like my morality and revealing himself and finding his scriptures and finding his word and listening for him and beginning to realize he has expectations of my life. And people do not want to have faith in God because it's a direct, direct battle with faith in yourself. Faith where being reposed in some other philosophy, some other religion that rewards you and yours a bit more. That allows you to keep. We see Christianity slipping from its moorings into some liberalism or, or, or even some wackiness or sectarian or cult-like behavior. You'll see it generally slipping further toward the, the idea of self-reward that those people may have be it sexual or monetary or, or, or uh, keeping up with the Joneses and the liberals. They don't want to be embarrassed at seminary um, by the people that, that, that don't think Jesus is Lord anymore, so we, we better not either. Everything out there, to one degree or another, some less than others, are making a choice for or against faith. They're suppressing the truth about God. Faith stands recognizing the truth about God because it's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, not dodging the thing not seen, not trying to become darkened in my understanding, not failing to recognize. And the faith, like James argues, that faith without works is dead. We know that, that faith is a, uh, um, is something that has to compound itself with a, 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 an action. You know, it, has to, uh, it has to have responsiveness to itself in order to prove that it was. Though not an action of itself, it has to have responsiveness to be true faith. Yeah, you have to have a way of being that you pursued because you believed. And so, when I see God as he is, the obedience of, when I, because you look, go back to the obedience of faith, and you begin to realize that there is a, uh, a degree of ability to obey what you have seen, what has been made clear to you, to everybody it's been made clear. That's why they're without excuse. And what do I do with that? I'm either going to start shutting down the evidence of the living God, or I'm going to start submitting myself to more of his expectation. First, I'm going, to, I'm going to give myself over to honoring him and thanking him. They, in their wickedness, stopped honoring him, stopped thanking him. That's why God gives them up. Because if I chase after some folly that allows me to 
do whatever it is I like, because I like doing it. Um, really, those, those don't have much uh, integrity of guidance. And people at the end of their lives, having lived according to Scientology, are a wreck. Whatever you want to bring up, you know, that they, they don't have what man has always wanted. They don't have it. These folly, these religions, these philosophies. Uh, I was telling a young man today who came over some counsel, and it's that old Dr. Phil line. Well, how's that working out for you? It's that. It's that. How's that working out for you? Well, it's not going to. And consequently, and you've heard me say this before, everyone has an inertial reason for what they do, that which moves them. If you do not have a reason for what you do, you will have a passion for what you do. Passion will move you, or a reason will move you, or authority will move you, or habit will move you. There's a few, very few things that will move you to do something. That is what they're left with, because the actual idea they excused it all with, these fake religions with idols of looking like a fish, and they bow down and worship. That's silliness. How can you build a life on that? Um, so they get given up to the lust, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. Because man was made with lusts, thank you very much. Women were made with lusts. We have desires. That's all the word is, is desires. The problem is, when you're given up to those, because you stop thanking he who gave it to you, you know, that, that um, you did not honor him or give him thanks for what gift of desire he gave you. So God gives you up to your desires that you enjoy, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now the basic in antiquity, running from God meant running to some pagan religion, some other non-Christian religious, there weren't a whole lot of irreligious people. People nowadays, they're still running from the creator to the creature, just the only creature left is the essential one, that's themselves. They find themselves serving themselves because they exchange the truth about God for a lie. They have to tell themselves, I can't know. How can you know about it? God, I'm really agnostic about this. What, what am I going to... All sorts of noise. And they exchange that for some other... They're left with the only inertial force. They no longer have reasonable philosophic guides for their life. They no longer have the authority of the living God to guide their life. They, they're given up to their passions. Given up to the lusts of their hearts. And for this reason, verse 26... God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Because when you follow your passions, you don't get to you don't get to have any legitimacy in saying, stop here, please. Why? Because this is wrong? This next desirable thing? And when you get out there in the fringes of desire, the next thing that seems so wrong isn't going to seem so wrong. And you even enter things I've always illustrated it with picking your nose because it feels so good when you were doing it when you were six 
And your mother says, quit, quit the way, Johnny, why are you picking your nose? And a little later in life, when you're absentmindedly sitting listening to a talk, somebody's got their iPhone pointed at you, and you wonder why. Well, your finger's up to the second knuckle in your nose, and you didn't realize that you had developed a, a, a situation where you followed that pleasure so much that you found yourself dishonoring yourself, shaming yourself, going into regions that, as, as he says of that person in Corinthians, even the Gentiles don't like this. When, when Caesar Augustus kicked uh, the, the, the Bacchaeids out of uh, Rome because of their just licentious behavior, and uh, Bacchanals were banned in Rome, Rome, for heaven's sake, imperial Rome, where everybody sinned, up a storm. And they said, that's just too wicked. Well, people were getting there. And we know it in our society. They're getting there. Dishonorable passions. Here, it's homosexuality. Their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women, were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. Now, this is not, although it's a passage about homosexuality, it's a passage about, it's an illustrative statement about what has happened. The thing that has happened is God giving people up to dishonorable passions. They were given up to their impurity for their own lusts because they, they lacked somewhere to turn other than their own desire for pleasure for a guide in life. They have no guide in life. They won't submit to any guide in life. So this is just the path that you take. And so homosexuality ends up being for the bottom of the uh, barrel. And not that you can't use this passage in, in a discussion with a homosexual uh, regarding um, uh, their sins, un unnatural consumption, but it's, it's more important that you recognize that since the, they did not see fit to acknowledge God, and that goes back, they did not honor him, or give him thanks. They exchanged the glory. They exchanged the truth about God. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. All of this is, is this point called God, and what are you going to do with it? Are you going to cover up the truth with a lie? Are you going to make yourself a creature to serve rather than the creator? Or are you going to pursue this God in faith? Because the pursuit of God is faith. Ever since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a base mind and improper conduct. Now, what you you don't want to get to that point and say, yes, this is just like San Francisco. Rome is like San Francisco. Because all wickedness is of this category. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of wickedness. Oh my gosh, not only were they sleeping around with people of their own gender, but they were covetous. All manner of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy. Well, those don't sound awful. You know, you might say, well, I could make it. Anybody here homosexual? Everybody goes, certainly not. Anybody ever gossip? Envy, murder, strife, deceit, malignity. They are gossips. Slanderers haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. 
And we have TV shows on that Adventures of Evil thing. Reality shows are, hey, let's go see if we can do this great witness in front of a camera. The camera will follow us around and we'll be looking in front of it. I always wanted the big house to be a reality show. There's just not enough wickedness here. And they'd probably have to prompt some, you know. Disobedient to parents. Wow, man. We're just hitting the bottom of the barrel. Bouncing twice. Grave homosexuality. Boom, boom. It gets worse. We're going down to covetousness. And we're going down to gossiping. And finally, the disobedience to parents. You got killed in Jewish law for disobedience to parents. These are all the same, the wickedness that comes from man is the antithesis, or it is the world in which no faith exists. That's what faith is juxtaposed against. Faith is looking for the unseen and becoming assured of it, and then having the reactions commensurate with that perception. You see the living God, you're thankful to the living God, you honor the living God, you listen to the living God, you do what the living God tells you. You believe him when he tells you something. That's faith. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. When you see God as he is, and you have the commensurate action, versus, oh, I don't, that's not going to let me, I want to serve, it's a choice of God's. What are you going to do with this God? You're going to have to run away, lie about him, ignore him, don't honor him. Now, I love the way this ends. I, I stop right there at disobedient to parents because it was always so funny to me. But then he says, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's, a, that's almost poetry. Poetry of evil. Though they know God's decree that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but approve of those who practice that. Now he's writing to Roman citizens who are Christians, who know very well, this is a really good description, of the world around them, the ungodly, the unbelieving, those who suppress the truth, who live in idolatry, and Rome was idolatry central. They, those who are given over to a life of wickedness, they're trying to do it in a group, because you've got to get absolution somewhere. And if you don't get gray marriage legalized, how am I going to feel normal about this? You know, if I don't get a bunch of my friends to go out drinking with me, because nothing's sadder than a lonely drunk at home. Just drinking enough Keystone to put themselves under the table. That's sad. It's even sadder than that. But boy, you go down to the garden and you knock a few pictures back until you can't barely walk straight. And, and then... Because it's in a commercial that way, and we've done the modern Christian, the virtue of having a designated driver, that makes it all good. You can be as um, ripped as possible. But people want absolution. They're going to be using, be, the reason they want absolution is guilt is objectively there. Guilt is not something, it's not really how they feel about it. Guilt exists because morality exists, and uh, uh, that gun's going to get that. Morality exists, and uh, and it doesn't matter what you do; they're st still going to rest on you. 
but they're going to try to find ways. They're trying to darken their understanding. They're trying to have philosophies that, that hide them from God. In chapter 2, uh, something I, that, that's coming up here. You've got the Gentile wicked up to this point. He's not talking to his audience, but he's describing it well. Chapter 2 says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, whoever you are, when you judge another. For in passing judgment upon him, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, are doing the very same thing. Now we're looking at the various ways sin exists in a world that where everyone has morality. Everyone knows good and evil. In that world, um, th- there is a, um, is a remarkable amount of moralizing. Now, C.S. Lewis does this in Mere Christianity, how people talk about, hey, that's not fair, hey, that's not your share, that's not your bit, quit doing that, that's not... Everybody is making judgments about everybody else. You can, you can watch one of those reality shows where people are preening their immorality on the screen and then watch them object to the behavior of somebody else. It's amazing. It is, it is I think, I haven't given it a lot of thought because it's, it, I was almost having an epiphany by my computer today as this thought just sort of washed through my mind of how total this behavior is. That everyone makes judgments about everyone else. And that act, first, they want to get everybody to join them in their sin. That's a certain degree of absolution. Then they want to call everyone else sinners. Because nothing makes you feel more righteous, oddly enough, than calling everyone else sinners. How does it even make sense? You're doing the very same things. When you remind people raising children, you, you may have had these experiences with telling your kids when one child is complaining about another. And you have to remind them, do you remember when you, do you recall this moment? Do you realize right now you are passing, you know, where she, she said I was, you know, she told you that I was being bad. You're telling me that she was bad. You're doing exactly the same thing. You were objecting. And they get all confused because reason is rarely used in their head. And, and they, they uh, but, but that's so standardly human because there's an automatic exemption of you in your assessment of sin. Automatic. When I sin, I have my friends around me and I approve of those who practice these sins. And when I sin, I've got every reason worked out. I know that I did it to serve my pleasures, and I did it to get ahead in all these things I wanted. I have this quote from Ambrose Bierce's Devil's Dictionary. I don't know if you're familiar, but it's the definition for Christian. He was not a Christian. Now, one who believes that the New Testament is a divinely inspired book, admirably suited to the spiritual needs of his neighbor, one who follows the teachings of Christ insofar as they are not inconsistent with the life of sin. There you have it. So you have the wicked, the people that are just wicked. Then you have who deal with it by popularizing their wicked, by being completely given over to it. And then you have the way of dealing with it that has to do with speaking against the wicked. It's a form of absolution. It's a Pharisee's form. Speak against the wicked. 
Do you know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things? Do you suppose, O man, that when you judge those who do such things, and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? What we have here is Paul's letting you know that this kind of hiding of sin is a presumption in your favor. Right? You're making a presumption that somehow when you do it, it's okay. He says, you don't think God has the same presumption, do you? Don't you think he makes a judgment according to what you did? Not who you were and whether you were a favored child? Do you presume upon his patience and kindness? That might have a purpose. He says, do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It was a, because this access goes from service to you to service to God. It's the axis of faith. Darkening understanding, leaving me to my passions and myself and my own worship of the creature. And the worship of God. And I'm going one way or the other on that line. And if I see his patience and his kindness, one mind says, oh, God is on my side. God has let me get away with it. God loves me better than you, or whatever else. No, it was meant to lead you to repentance. You were supposed to turn around on that point. You were supposed to listen to his mercy and find it remarkable, and it would turn you back to him to honor him and give him thanks. But by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. For he will render to every man according to his works. Okay? The Christian view is it's what you do. Right? What you do, not how you hit it. <laughs> whether you were wicked in a group, whether you spoke against it. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are factious and do not obey the truth, but obey wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. Simple Simple. Now, you, I, I made seek and factious red. I didn't make much red here on the back side of the sheet. Why did I make seek and factious? Seek for glory. Those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. They get the... And those who are factious. What is factious? They separate from. That's what a faction is, right? The word heresy comes from this word, actually. But, but those who are separated, that turn the other way. Remember this axis between who God is and the crushing weight of a life of sin and judgment of God is whether you're walking away from it or you're walking towards it. Do you seek God or do you, are you factious? One leads you to the judgment of God. There'll be wrath and fury for those people. Because to get away from God, to turn away from God, they have to obey wickedness. They're going to get given up to their desires. That's all they have left. But glory and... Um, there, will be there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. 
for God shows no partiality. And people say, that, I thought that just sounded partial there, the Jew first and also the Greek. Uh, God shows greater honor, the partiality. If everybody's lined up for lunch at camp, and uh, there was enough lunch for everybody, and it was going to be a hot lunch for everybody. It was going to be hot when everybody got it, and everybody got the same thing exactly. The fact that he let the ladies go first, it's honor, but it's not partial. It says, if the ladies go first and they get steaks, and the boys go second and they get peanut butter. You know, okay, there's a partiality there. But uh, but here they're getting all the same thing. There's the wrath of God or the, the blessing of God. God shows no partiality. All who have sinned without the law. Now this is, Paul is making a strong point here about the pervasiveness of sin. The pervasiveness of sin and all the forms it takes. From everything from gross sexual immorality to attitude crimes that are still there in your darkened understanding to protect your way versus God's way. And then how you deceive yourself with personal innocence presumed on your part when you speak against the sins of others. God showing no partiality is explained a little bit. All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. This struck me as another category. You had the, just the downright wicked, people who went out and gathered people at the dorms and said, let's go be wicked together. And let's put it on film, on YouTube. And uh, others who said, I, I really don't approve of these wicked people, and, and although they were doing the things themselves. And then there are the people who don't, it's not speaking against the wickedness, but they put themselves in submission to hearing righteousness. It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. It is not the fact that you exist in a Christian community where your family faithfully takes you to church, where you hear the, the Bible preached faithfully. It's not the hearers. It's not that you got into an argument with some of your friends that, that homosexuality is wrong or living in sin is wrong or drinking too much is wrong, because that speaking against immorality is not righteousness either. It's whether or not you are righteous. When you have, by faith, stood in the presence of God and lived, done what he wanted, it is doers of the law who will be justified. When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the law, what the law requires is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or perhaps excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The judgment is on these, these works. And the question is, for the man of faith, how do I get there? The Christian method, message is we get there by faith. We get into the righteousness of God. We get forgiveness from God by faith. We get the righteousness of God by faith. It's for faith, through faith, for faith. I said that already. More faith. And here's a little bit of the background thing here. I don't think he's necessarily intending to do this. He's letting us know how God was dealing with the Jew-Gentile problem. He's saying they have a conscience. 
they'll be judged by it. And sometimes it'll tell them they were okay, excuse them. Other times, not so much. But if you call yourself a Jew, verse 17, and rely upon the law and boast of your relation to God, and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed in the law, and if you are sure that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, will you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? You see Paul, if he's preaching this, shaking his fist. I mean, there's this moment where he has got everybody. And a little later in the book, we're going to find out, he has made this case aggressive to the wicked, to the Gentile, to the Jew, and to, to you know, light every bush they're hiding on, on fire. So everybody has to run out in the center of the room, all burning, so they all know you're sinners. You've done the bad thing. And guess what? God judges you by what you do. The doers of the law will be justified. Every man will be judged according to what he has done. As it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, he's not, if this were all there was, we'd come up with a kind of a, a bastardized Christianity. We wouldn't because it seems like it's all going to be works righteousness at the end, you know, that you have enough, that Anubis or Thoth or whoever it is in the Egyptian model uh, weigh your soul against the feather, and if any of your deeds, you know, is it that kind of thing? Remember, this is the obedience of faith. Faith is, <coughs> he made his thematic remark, salvation for everyone who has faith. It is the righteousness of God revealed through faith for faith, and he who through faith is righteous shall live. So the task of getting you to righteousness hasn't been yet addressed, but it, the problem that it's answering certainly has. Every hidey hole that you could put yourself in, and every claim you might make is in this position of unfaith. I am not being very um, Godward. I have not listened. I took my excuses where there were no excuses. I hid my misbehavior under all sorts of um, specious arguments. And I tried to hide my sins so that I didn't look so bad, including the Jews. Now, it, it, the, the sarcasm is dripping, you know, when, you get, when he gets to corrector of the foolish, a teacher of children. Oh, aren't you something? You are given over to this new culture of the evangelical seizure of, of uh, American culture so that we can bring back nobility. Oh, shut up. Are you faithful to your wife? Are you faithful to God? Because God is going to judge us by what we do, not what we claim, not what we defend, not what we shoot guns at. If we're still allowed to have them, Circumcision, indeed, is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. The thing that hung out there as the mark, the brand, the, 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 the logo of the Jew and faithfulness to Judaism, he says, it's, you know, really, when you get down to it, if you're not righteous, it's 
actually the opposite of what it claims to be. It becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Well, does it work the other way too? Wouldn't he be viewed as somebody for whom all these things of God were really true? Then those who are physically uncircumcised, but who keep the law, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. So the person who really is changed will be a judge of all these people who aren't changed, who are still living in whatever hidey hole either Judaism provides for them or Gentile uh, living provides for them, gross wickedness provides for them, standard moralizing Western proprieties provide for them. You can't build a life of goodness on disapproving of everybody else. You can't build a life of goodness listening to goodness talked about a whole lot, nor having a culture that is a, you might say, a banner flying over you saying goodness is sold here. Unless you're good. Simple. They get down to it, got to be good. And those that are good are as much circumcised as you who had the circumcision. So it's really, that's just sort of a not really important. For he who is a, this is a real strong remark here, for he is not a real Jew who, who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. He is a Jew who is one inwardly. And real circumcision is a matter of the heart, spiritual and not literal. His praise is not from men, but from God. There's a hint of where he's going with all of this, because and there are people who, even in Christian circles, turn baptism into an equivalent to circumcision, and you know, although it, it does associate them, well, wouldn't, just like with circumcision, it has to be spiritual, not literal? It has to be of the heart and not of the, um, of the body? Shouldn't the baptism be so also in the New Covenant? Um, we are, we're constantly fighting this kind of drag away from the personal accountability to the righteousness of God. On that, on that axis between who God is and what you're going to do with it, you're sliding up and down. Your wickedness is in terms of how you're responding to who he is and do I seek him or am I factious against him? Do I cover that factiousness with all kinds of religion? All kinds of false religion, all kinds of true religion, all kinds of loud sinning, all kinds of ignoring my sinning. All kinds of keeping a cultural marker out there to prove to people that I'm not one of the sinners. Or do I really start to measure my own heart? Because it's my faith, it's not our group faith. This group can't have faith together my faith. Do I, because it's my righteousness, it's my hell, it's my heaven. This is not a, 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 a something that the collective can work out for you. It's not something, we're not like the sinners who can gain righteousness in the collective like the sinner tries to gain absolution in the collective. We have to point ourselves to our hearts Becoming one inwardly and measuring it by the deed. Not to earn, again, we're not, 
because this is all resting on faith. This is all what comes, a righteousness that stems from faith. So it has to be a decision made. When I stand on that gradient and deal with God and say, do I bow the knee to him or do I not? Do I grant that he is divine with infinite power? Do I grant that he has done good and I must thank him? Do I grant that he um, uh, represents ethics in this world and I must answer for the ethical lapses I have committed? I, once I start to seek him and honor, and what's the phrase that was seeking glory, honor, and immortality? That's the path that somewhere on that line I'm either choosing to shut down and get away from holiness and cover up or I'm choosing to look for glory, honor, and immortality. And then grace is poured out to me. It's not my faith that then my works and then God forgives. No, that's Mormonism. It's my faith, God's grace, and the righteousness that is demanded of me then grows naturally. Because the righteousness has to happen. There's no place to hide except in righteousness. And that's the end of chapter 2. Not bad. Okay, hour and about an hour and 50 minutes. Started a little late. Um, we're doing two chapters again, four and five, three and four. I'm not skipping three. Three and four, a little bit shorter, but I'll just, I'll just lengthen it. I'll just... Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful. Thank you for your mercies to us. Your kindness that led us to repentance. Thank you for your grace that made us righteous and is making us more righteous daily still where we can offer up our lives to your judgment because of your goodness to us. In your son's name, amen.